Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys, talk to you soon. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. My name is Eric Skorzynski. I'm Travis's producer. And on today's episode, we're talking to three different guests about what it takes to be a successful writer, and the lineup could not be better. First up is Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and New York Times bestselling author of Genius Foods. Next is Jack Canfield, the author of The Success Principles and the co-author of The Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And last but not least is Jay Papasan, Vice President and Executive Editor at Keller Williams Realty, co-author of The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, and The One Thing. For all you aspiring authors, this is a must-listen episode. And even if you're not, there are some powerful takeaways that come with personal development and just managing your day-to-day life that you'll find useful. Listen to the whole episode, and remember, if you find anything in this episode useful, take a screenshot and tag Travis on Instagram with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, here we go into the episode. What a lot of people don't understand about books, and I've never written a published book myself, so I'm just going off of all my friends who have. What a lot of people don't understand is that deal with a publisher does not guarantee a successful book. So can you talk about how that process went for you and how you help the publisher sell more copies of your book? And yeah, success. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's true. Publishers, the book 
market these days is one such in that publishers have to basically take a bunch of different risks. And one out of every, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm not a publisher, but one out of every 50 books, I'm sure, um, stick and become that perennial bestseller, right? So they've got to make a bunch of different investments, keep a a diversified portfolio in authors, and then one is going to end up becoming like the home run. So my book was one of those where all the signs were there that it could be a book that sold a few copies. You know, I was, I didn't have a large Instagram following at all. So if you're wondering whether or not you need to be an influencer on, on social media, you don't. I didn't have a, an Instagram following of any um, significance. But at the time I was doing TV. So I was on the Dr. Oz show pretty regularly at that point. And I was doing another show called The Doctors with some regularity. And so they also, I think, saw in me that I was the perfect storyteller for this topic. You know, I was the mm-hmm. perfect journeyman to bring audiences along to learn about how nutrition can help improve the way that your brain works and to help procure uh, long-term brain health. So I was the right person for the job. They felt that. And so they, they gave me, they took a shot. But at the end of the day, because it's a numbers game for these publishers, they've got, they're releasing at any given month, a number of different books. And so for you to assume that they're going to come out and like all guns blazing, put all of their efforts behind your book when they've got all these other books that they've invested just as much money into, that's not going to be the case. So I realized that this was like a once in a lifetime, literally a once in a lifetime shot. You know, you release your first book once. And if it doesn't go well, there's probably no uh, second book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, like you would, you would think that your chances are definitely diminished, right? If it doesn't go well, you're probably not going to write a second book. That being said, it's rare. It's very rare that first time authors become bestsellers. But yeah, I mean, I did realize that I thought that if there was any sanity in the universe, that this book was going to do well, because I really put my, you know, I put blood, sweat and tears into it. It was motivated by something very pure. For example, I know that many people write books these days to kind of serve as like funnels to their businesses. I did not do that. I wrote my book with the sole intention of putting out the best possible information into the world that I could and doing it in a compelling way. So there was no ulterior motive there. So I knew that I I knew that I had labored over the book and that my intentions were pure, that it was a good book and that there was no other book on the topic in the same style as my book available to people. And that by it becoming a bestseller, it could do a world of good for people's health all around the world. And so I believed in it so strongly and I I worked on it so hard and night and day that the idea of investing money into the project, but ultimately myself was a no brainer. You know, I had to because it was this once in a lifetime shot and I would have regretted not doing so. Yes. When you say I, I invested into the book slash myself, what exactly were the methods? What, like, what did you invest? Did you invest into the actual marketing or did you invest into coaching to understand how to sell a book or, or what, what exactly did, do you mean when you say that? Yeah, no coaching, no marketing. So all of the marketing for the book was done by me personally. And there were no marketing tricks. I didn't buy copies of my own book or anything like that. All I did was I invested in a PR strategy to help me manage the PR, both the PR, the incoming PR requests. But then also I knew that I had a lot of relationships in the publishing world, like magazine publishing, as well as the TV world. So I hired a PR company to basically help me organize and sift through all of that stuff while also bringing, you know, any other potential opportunities that they could bring to the table. So that's just like purely PR, you know, that's distinct from marketing. On the marketing side, I did invest money into the 
editing of a book trailer, although I can't tell you what the ROI was on that. I have no idea how that may or may not have converted to book sales, but I did hire a friend of mine who I've worked with in the past who's an editor to help me put together a trailer for my book, which you can find on YouTube. But that's pretty much it. No big tricks, no smoke and mirrors, nothing like that. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. At what point after your release did you realize that you had a potential bestseller on your hands or was it already a bestseller? Well, I saw it rise up the Amazon ranks really rapidly that week. Um, and what, what, what year was this, by the way? This was March 2018. So this okay. was, yeah. Very recent. Yeah. So, I mean, it was rising up the Amazon ranks really, really rapidly. And it hit, I think, the highest it ever reached was number four out of all books, which at the time, I mean, the the top five, I feel like it was Jordan Peterson's book. 12 Rules for Life. 12 Rules for Life. Yeah. It was not leaving the top <laughs> five position. It was just right. there. It was like perennially up there. And I was really excited to have surpassed his book for a window. And um, no kidding. Yeah. And so that was, that was like the first week. And um, that week, it was the top selling or one of the top selling advice books, miscellaneous how-to or advice books in the US. So it ended up making the New York Times list. So on the first week. So from that, a huge congrats on that, by the way. From there, was there a plan that you put into place to continue bolstering that brand? For a second book, like what, what did you did you start putting a ton of effort into social media and Instagram and all the other things that you have going on now at that point, or was that a little bit before with some of the PR that you were doing? 
The Instagram kind of started a little bit before the launch of the book. I kind of had switched my Instagram philosophy as to how I approached that medium. And my Instagram account started growing sometime in 2017. And so I think when my book came out, I had like 70 to 80,000 followers already, maybe, maybe fewer than that. But yeah, I mean, I knew that that was a big part of the puzzle as well, because that's where the young people were hanging out in terms yeah. of social networks. And I knew that those are the types of people that I wanted to be reaching. And so I knew that I had to invest energy into Instagram. And when it came to figuring out what strategy was going to work, I basically tried everything. I was, I was not afraid to experiment and uh, to fail and to have a post you know, now and then that had no engagement because tinkering is ultimately what led to me figuring out the format that worked. And ended up, that's the format that I've stuck with. And it's built me a huge following at this point. And then sometime after that, I launched my podcast, which is called The Genius Life. I think a few months after I launched Genius Foods. And that was, you know, just so the reason why I launched the podcast is just to continue having conversations with people that I could learn from PhDs, MDs, whoever can basically add to my knowledge base so that I can then explore further and then communicate those findings to my audience. Well, what's been a positive side effect of the podcast that you weren't expecting when you started it? Well, I, I had no idea that it was that it was going to be successful. I mean, when I first started, I didn't think that I was a good interviewer. I hear that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think that I was that I was very good. And there were certainly things that I would do that drove me crazy that, you know, when listening back to my early interviews, I would go back and I would edit out, you know, like a lot of ums. Yeah. And um yeah, like just kind of meandering dead questions and dead spaces, right. questions that were like that took too long to get to the actual question. So, I, you know, the fact that it's that that it has reached the audience that it has to me is amazing. Like people come up to me and they tell me that they're a fan of the podcast and part of me internally, I'm like, really? That's, a, <laughs> that's, that's so cool. But I totally, Are you sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But over time I've gotten better. And part of the reason why I've, I've kept up with it is because I'm enjoying the process of becoming a better interviewer and getting better at that skill. So yeah, I will admit that it has gotten better over time. And the only reason that it's gotten better is because I've stuck with it. Yeah, it's so true. And uh, I mean, there's so so many things there to take away from that. But ultimately, it's just consistency, sticking with things and being willing to suck. I think yeah. people just aren't willing to suck, man. Like they hear your podcast 74 episodes in like it is, right? But they, they don't go back to episode number one and hear like maybe awkward stumbling. But even you would be starting at, at a huge advantage because you've been on media and doing PR and creating content, and writing books and all this stuff. And people, I just think people just aren't willing to suck at something. They're afraid of the embarrassment or they're afraid of other people's judgment or something like that. But ultimately, you have to just come to terms with the fact that if you're just starting out in something, even though you think you're probably better than you really are, like you are going to suck and it's okay. Just keep doing it. Because yeah. eventually you're going to get better. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I used to go back and I used to edit all of my earliest episodes. Like the first dozen or so of my episodes I would listen to and I would edit out all the ums and all the likes and everything mm-hmm. like that. And if there was an inelegant question being asked, I would try, you know, all kinds of audacity acrobatics to like try to smooth out that question. But now... I'm at a point where, you know, sometimes, of course, I'll still ask a question that doesn't come out as elegantly as I would have hoped. But now I leave it in. I barely do any editing because I'm like, you know what? (laughs) Sometimes I'm not as articulate as I want to be. Sometimes I have on days, I have off days, you know. For example, I'm doing a week right now where I'm off coffee. Every couple of months, I do uh, like a one to two week coffee purge where I do 
I'll either cut the coffee out completely or just do like decaf. And for the first three days, I feel like I'm like kind of moving a little bit underwater, but it's worth it in the end because your energy yeah. levels just like totally stabilize and feel amazing. I think it's it's worth it for every coffee drinker to try to like to do that occasionally. But anyway, so I did that for the first time a couple months back and it was actually more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I was like, oh, I, you know, I do this kind of stuff all the time. I'll just give up coffee for a week. And then like day four, I was like, has it been a week yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's hard. And, and part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we coffee is so baked into like our routines. Right. It's it's um, like ritualized, not yeah. just yeah. Um, good. I mean, I wake up and I look like I look forward to that cup of coffee. So that's really you have to get. So that's why I'll do like decaf, because at least it gives me a little bit of that placebo effect. But anyway, yeah. So over the past two days, I've recorded a bunch of different podcast interviews. And, you know, I could tell that I'm not function. I'm not firing on all cylinders necessarily. But even listening back at those episodes, as I prep them to go live, I'm like, you know, you don't even sound as bad as you thought you did while you're recording. Like, this is fine. It's great. Yeah, looking through here, man, you've, you've been able to have some some powerhouses on, uh, some some mutual guests that we've both had on, like Tom Billu and Aubrey Marcus and Drew Manning. There's man, there's just scrolling through here. There's a bunch of just awesome, awesome people. If you were to pick a few that stood out, not necessarily like the biggest names or whatever, but like maybe the most impactful conversations that you have had, talk to me about a couple of those interviews. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not a like a, a celebrity chaser. So, I mean, I'm not. If you see names that are that are familiar or that seem like they're um, more well known, it's only because I happen to be friends with them that I've had right. them on. But really, I think the, some of the best interviews are from people that you've never heard of. For example, so true. On, yeah. on my podcast, uh, Nicholas Coleman. He's a very good friend of mine. He's one of the world's few oleologists. He's a, an olive oil expert, and wow. I'm a huge fan of extra virgin olive oil. I think it's one of the greatest foods and condiments and certainly oils that we have at our disposal. And so it's episode 31 of my podcast, how to buy the best extra virgin olive oil. I'm just like geeking out with him over this extra virgin olive oil. And he's so excited about it because it's like his life. He's dedicated his life to the olive. And you just kind of like comes through the headphones. It's like such a great interview. I didn't know that there was that much to know about olive and olives and olive oil until we were in Spain and we toured this like olive oil factory or manufacturer. It was really, it was really a farm, really. It it just like, I say factory, it gives this idea of like this giant facility with whatever, but it was more like a farm, like a family farm. And they made this olive oil and they they were talking to us about it. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there was this much stuff to watch out for. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, I I feel like there's something... There's a, everything has a, its own world. Yeah, it's so true. You could dive deep into so many different things that you just never thought had that much stuff to learn. Exactly. I know that you said that your uh, your your dad and, and your parents, your stepdad growing up, had limiting beliefs about money right. and different things like that. So, it was, was were those programmed into your brain? Did you have to do a lot of mental reprogramming? I did. I was I was I grew up kind of in the hippie period of the '60s, and I was like against big business and people that have money must have screwed somebody to get it kind mm-hmm. of mentality. Yeah. And um, I met W. Clement Stone when I was in Chicago in graduate school. And he was, uh, he wrote a book called, um, The Success System Never Fails. He was good friends with Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich. Mm. And I started studying with him, uh, weekend workshops and so forth and totally changed my mind. He just, I never forget him saying success is not a four letter word, meaning mm. it's not a bad right. thing. Yeah. And, you know, the more money you have, the more good you can do. One of Bob Proctor's great quotes is, if you don't have money, the good you can do is limited to your physical presence. If you have money, you can do good all over the world. Mm. And, and so I began to realize, 
and I grew up in a middle class world where I thought, you know, if I just go to college and get a job, I'll be a good guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got to college, I got involved in a civil rights movement. I started to wake up in terms of liberation and 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 fairness, and and everyone should have a shot at, at success. Yeah. And I began to realize, wow, I would like to have all that as well. You know, live in the big house and have a nice car and have money to travel and do education and take care of my family. So you initially started as an educator, right? Yes. So you you weren't planning on going to some big university, but then all of a sudden you had a teacher that pushed you. Can you talk us through like how that was? Yeah, I was I was going to this school in West Virginia, which is not known for its education systems. <laughs> and my Latin teacher uh, decided I was, you know, maybe more gifted than a lot of kids. And she said to me one day, where are you going to apply to college? I said, I don't know, Ohio State, West Virginia University. She says, well, I can get you into West Virginia University with a letter because she was like, well-known in that world. And she said, you need to apply to some Ivy League schools. And I thought, you're crazy. You know? <laughs> and uh, But I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Brown and uh, also just believed she could get me into West Virginia. I got into all three, which was surprising to me. And I also got an appointment to West Point in Annapolis, which I decided oh, wow. not to do. Um, but I ended up at Harvard and... Um, Majored in Chinese history, which has nothing to do with what I do Chinese today. Chinese history. It just yeah. proves I can uh, study hard on things that you know are challenging and persevere. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So during that time, what was like the biggest deciding factor for you? Like, why Harvard? Well, was there anything that stood out? This is embarrassing, but what stood out for me was there were about twenty-five girls' schools within fifteen miles. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I had gone to an all-boys school. All nothing high embarrassing school. about that. Yeah. And I just thought. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big city. It's near yeah. Boston. It's not isolated. And uh, everyone always just said Harvard was the kind of, you know, pinnacle of the whole thing. So why not? Cool, cool. So in Harvard, you major in Chinese history. Then what happens after that? My senior year, my roommate took a course called Sock Rail 10, Social Relations 10. And um, and then he took another course in psych. And he said, these are really cool. You should take them. So I took this course. It turned into be what we called back then an encounter group. We just sat around and talked about our feelings and learned about relationships. And I had none of that. I mean, I grew up in a very, a family that was extremely, didn't talk about their feelings in an all-boys school where you had to be macho. And then you go to Harvard. It's an all-boys school back then. You had to be macho. And this was like new, but I, I woke up. It was like, I want to do this. I want to help people discover who they really are, develop their human potential. And with a degree in Chinese history, that wasn't really easy to get into graduate <laughs> school. So my advisor said, well, why don't you go into education as if you're going to teach history. And then while you're in graduate school in education, you can take ed psych and psych courses. And that's what I did. Okay. And I taught in an all-black inner city school for two for a year. And what I discovered, I became more interested in motivating my students than I was in teaching history. Hmm. And that's when I discovered there was this guy named W. Clement Stone who had a foundation where they were teaching people how to help kids achieve more through psychology. So more heart knowledge than head knowledge, kind of? Yeah. Say? I mean, the head's involved, but the heart is more important, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we need both, heart and head. And um, when those are integrated, then you have people that are really functioning at a high level. So then you go to this foundation, and the guy that's running this basically becomes your first mentor, right? Correct. Okay. And what kind of relationship were you, did you like? Was it was it pretty formal in the fact that like you sat down with them and you'd go over goals and stuff like that, or was it just kind of like I didn't spend all that much time with him. I did spend some time with him, but most of the time I spent with the guy that he put in charge of his foundation, a guy named Dr. Billy Sharp, who was okay. a, a real genius. And then there were three other people, all PhD psychologists, who were really bright. And they just took me under their wing and just mentored me. Yeah. And then I got time with Stone as well. I'll never forget 
probably the most profound conversation we had. We were, it was literally from the elevator at the top of the building down to the first floor. Okay. And I said, Mr. Stone, you know, I'm fairly radical, you know, leftist, Democrat, you know, <laughs> and you're a totally conservative, right, Republican, and yet we get along really well. Why? And he said, you know, he drew two circles, and he just two circles where there's a little bit of overlap like this. Mm-hmm. And he said, we don't agree on this, and we don't agree on that. But we both agree that we need to be educating people in the inner city and empowering them to get out of the ghetto and blah, 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 blah. So all I want to do is spend my time with you on that. There's no reason to talk about anything else. Mm-hmm. And that really transformed the way I look at people that don't agree with everything. I do, well, what can we agree on and what can we get done? And let's not waste our time. Yeah. That was profound. And then his other thing was, he just taught me goal setting, values, visualization, affirmation, perseverance, and do it now. He 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 came up with do it now way before uh, Nike did. Way before Nike, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just for some context here for somebody watching or listening that may not know who that is, can you give a little bit of context? Sure. He he was a guy who did not go to college. He later got a college degree after he became wealthy. He just wanted to complete that for himself. But he sold newspapers on the street. He was really, really poor. He took a job as a salesperson in an insurance company. He just rocked the world. He just knew mm. how to sell. Yeah. And he studied it. And um, so eventually he started his own insurance company, Combined Insurance. And he then was the publisher of Success Magazine, which is now the big, used to be a small, like Reader's Digest size. Yeah. He published that. He had a company called Hawthorne uh, uh, Publishing, where he did publish all these books. Um, the guy that wrote The Greatest Salesman That Ever Lived, mm-hmm. um, Ogmandino, was the editor of, of the Success uh, Magazine, no worked in the same mm-hmm. building I did. So mm-hmm. I would go up in the evenings because Og burned the midnight oil and so did I. <laughs> I got mentored by him. That wow, was incredible. Awesome. So I was just surrounded by these 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 gurus of positive belief and take action and anything's possible. And it was um, very, very cool. This guy was worth... He was worth $600 million in the 1970s, so he would have been a billionaire by today's inflationary standards. For sure, for sure. Um, We're going to touch on some of that stuff a little bit later. I kind of want to continue along the whole life story thing because there's so much networking little things that you're just talking about as far as mentorship and stuff like that goes. But um, So now moving along from here, you are teaching in the inner city, and Mm -hmm. then did did you get a job at at a college or something as a professor after that? Well, what happened, I, I I worked at that school. Then this professor from Harvard started a program at a XVA hospital that turned into what was called a job course center, where kids who had dropped out of school ended up getting job training. Okay. And so I was there, part of like a four-person Young Turks out of education school team. We were doing radical stuff. We started. We were the first people to create individualized learning. We actually took the Sullivan reading program where you go, A sounds like apple or grape, you know, mm-hmm. and we put the instruction with the teacher does on tape recorders so every kid could move at their own pace. And now everyone does that in their computers. We mm-hmm. were the first guys to do that. So then I went from there back to um, Chicago for a year, worked at the Stone Foundation some more, and then I went to uh, the University of Massachusetts. There was a professor I met at the yeah. conference who said, we would love to have you in graduate school. I said, I can't, I don't want to, pay that money right now. He said, we'll give you a full scholarship. Gave me a full wow. scholarship, made me a teaching assistant. So I taught for a while. Then I had a teaching job at Hampshire College, which is also in Amherst, Massachusetts. So I was at University of Mass in Amherst. And then I'm writing, I'm, I'm at my doctorate level and I just got arrogant. Like, I don't need the damn PhD. Hmm. I'm already, I wrote a book by then called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. <laughs> I was getting consulting jobs back then at 300 a day, which was a lot. I was going to say, so the, that book that you wrote at that time, mm-hmm. 
like sold a lot of copies. 400,000 copies. That's crazy. Yeah. It's it, crazy. It, it, like it changed my whole perception of who I was, what yeah. could be done with a book. And I started one getting of those big goals that you always talk about. Yeah. Right? Like one of the, the life marker goals. Yeah. And I had this professor who was a best selling author named Sid Simon. And, and I said, I want to go up and be like you. He mm-hmm. said, well, here's how I did it. And so one of the things I teach if you're, you're networking and mentoring is like, ask people that have done what you want to do, how they did it. You know, Keith Ferrazzi wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like every meal you could invite someone to join you or you could have lunch with them or you could go for a walk. So I used to go with this professor. He was a hiker. And um, and just ask questions. And you'd be surprised how many people will say yes. But anyway, so it sold 400,000 copies. So I left school and I started a, a, a growth center. It's a okay. place where people go for weekend workshops. And we had 11 acres of land just right outside of Amherst. And we put on about 40 weekend workshops a year, most oh, wow. of which I took if I wasn't leading them. Okay. And so I got just like about a 10-year education that was insane. So you were hosting them, right. but and participating in them. Because right. I spent all my money taking workshops at other centers. <laughs> I ran out of money. <laughs> I said, the only way I can do this is if I bring people in. Yeah. And it started in the Holiday Inn because that's all I could afford. And then I eventually got married and we bought a house that had a 30 by 30 living room we could run workshops in okay and um that it just evolved out of that Uh, it says so much though just about resourcefulness just in and of itself because a lot of people would just run out of money and then just be like all right well that was fun (laughs) and then like and then it's done you know but you instead of doing that were like i love doing this i want to continue to learn about this this and this but I, I, I don't have the money to do it right now. So right. I'll just host them and then exactly. be a part of them. <laughs> or yeah, the other learn thing, for free. The other yeah. thing you can do is so many people now run seminars. They need mm-hmm. assistance, people to hand out the Kleenex, to yeah. register people at the door, to hand out the crayons, whatever right. it is. And so I did some of that along the way as well. Yeah, really cool, really cool. So now you have an actual education company, basically, right, where you're right. running these workshops and everything mm-hmm. like that. At what point does the chicken soup for the soul come out of this whole thing i was running around doing the workshops but also doing a lot of speaking okay and i learned in my inner city classrooms that the only time the kids really paid attention was when i was telling a story if i was telling a historical fact or the five causes of the civil war or whatever they're like zoned out yeah but if i would tell a story about an escaped slave or if i'd tell a story and i began to realize these kids didn't believe they'd be successful. So I started reading Jet and um, Ebony Magazine and looking for stories of African-Americans who'd made it, hmm. you know, who were corporate people, successful lawyers, whatever. And I would bring those to school and I'd read them to them. I'd put them on the bulletin board. And that's what they were like, whoa, you, someone like me did that? Yeah, yeah. And so I saw the power of stories. I just started collecting inspirational, motivational stories. And as I was doing my seminars after I'd started, um, you know, the, the company called Self-Esteem Seminars, mm-hmm. it became the Campfield Training Group now, I would tell these stories to inspire people. And people would come up and say, that's a story about the Girl Scout who sold 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. Is that in a book anywhere? My daughter needs to read it. A story about the guy who climbed Mount Everest who was blind. Is that in a book anywhere? And I go, no, no, <laughs> no. And one day it was like God was knocking me yeah. on the head saying, hey, put those stories in a book. How right. many times do I have to have people ask right. me this question? <laughs> So I literally on the plane coming back from Boston to L.A. at the time, I wrote down every story I knew. It came out to 70 stories. Wow. And so I said, I'm going to write a story, two stories a week, and within a year I'll have a book. And that's what happened. Then toward the end of that, I met Mark Victor Hansen at a breakfast, and he asked me what I was doing, what I was excited about, and I told him. He said, uh, I want to do that with you. And I said, Mark, that's like telling, you know, James Mishner, he's three quarters done with the book Hawaii yeah. <laughs> and you want to finish it with him. Why would he let you do that? And he said, well, first of all, you took a lot of stories that are mine and you use them. And secondly, he said, I got a lot of stories you never heard. 
And I and he said, you need 101 stories. That's a spiritual number. He had done an internship in India when he was in college. Okay. So I said, well, if you can find 31 stories, we'll do it. And he did. And it was a great match because he's much more of a marketer, promoter okay. than I was at the time. And I was much more of a detail guy. So it became a great marriage for the yeah. time we we did it. Hey, welcome to the show, man. Super, super stoked to have you on. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. You know, this is actually uh, a unique interview for me because my personal development journey started. So we've talked about it, hinted around it. Um, The one thing this year uh, is a fantastic book. This is one of the first books that I actually read in my personal development journey. I call it that because... I, unlike you, was not a reader at all, and I'm sure my dad's over there smiling, laughing, because he tried to get me to read, tried everything to get me to read when I was a kid, and I just, I hated it. Like, it was literally like torture to me. Like, hmm. it, it was just, he tried this incentive, that incentive, just didn't like to do it, and I, I was always playing sports and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so it just never, it never intrigued me. If I, if I wanted to read for entertainment or something like that, I would just watch the movie. <laughs> That's yeah. how I always tell people. I was just like, if, it, if it's a good enough book, they'll make it into a movie and I'll watch it then. That's <laughs> how I tell people about it. We can hope so, to sell the movie, right? No yeah, looks yet, yeah, but yeah, we can hope. So when I started to finally understand the power of personal development was a couple of years ago after um, I had, I, it was after a success of mine, but after realizing that I didn't want to continue in that particular field uh, in, in after the success. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like, I just did a lot of soul searching, didn't know where to do, or what to do or, or where to turn. So I just kind of audiobooks, podcasts, all that stuff. And this was one of the first uh, full books that I actually went through because I honestly if I read five books up to that period of time that I actually wanted like out of my own volition not that school made me read even though most of those I didn't read either right um, you just read the back flap and write an essay right so um, if I if I read five books that'd probably be a surprising number so finishing a book to me when I started into all this was a very big accomplishment and this is one of the first books that I did because of how captivating and because of how simple but profound the book is. We've already talked about one of the things, one of the biggest takeaways. Um, you say the word simple, and I'll just jump on. Like, if you look at all of our five-star reviews on Amazon, mm-hmm. like the number one thing people like about it is its simplicity. Mm-hmm. If you look at all the one-star reviews, what are they complaining about? It's too simple. Really? So it's like, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Like, people can't operate um, and complicated for long. That's one of the things Gary's definitely taught me. And so if you can keep things simple, mm. people can actually do something with it. So right. that was by design. It's, yeah. it's got to be simple. Got to be something that people can actually put into place, that yeah. I can actually practice. Um, we, ta- we talked about one of the things that is um, a big standout takeaway as far as narrowing down your goals and bringing the goals to the now type thing. One of my biggest things, this was a total game changer for me in terms of my mindset around the whole issue, was uh, how you guys talked about discipline, how you broke down discipline and basically saying that everybody has about the same amount of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, you see somebody, in my perspective, I would see somebody that was just insanely disciplined. They appeared to be insanely disciplined, like up at 5 a.m., read. They write 15 books a year. They read 48 books a year. They, 
but they're super productive throughout the day. They have every single minute of their day scheduled. And it's like, man, I can never be that disciplined. I'll look at that and say, they're just that way. They're just a disciplined person, right? So after reading this book, it just was kind of a huge aha moment for me when I read through the fact that like everybody basically has the same amount of discipline. The difference is some people discipline those discipline, like discipline that amount of discipline to stack habits on each other. Can right. you talk about habit stacking? Sure. Um, it was kind of a surprise for us. Like we, we thought that being a disciplined person was part of the game too for success. Mm-hmm. And um, the more we looked at it, um, we called it selected discipline. Okay. You know, they need just enough discipline to do something until it becomes habitual. Mm. And when you really look at the, that perfect guy or gal you're talking about that reads 48 books and writes 14, my goodness, right? It must be romance writer. Right. <laughs> um, so you've got this person who seems to have everything going on. If you look under the hood, um, and that, I've not found any real exceptions to this, that happened over time, hmm. right? They might have started by saying, you know what, I'm going to set a goal of reading one book a month. And over time, that became, because they got better and better at that, mm-hmm. they had the habit of reading every day, and they just started reading more. And now that's 48 books a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once that habit was established, they maybe added, hey, you know what, I think if I could write more if I got up early. And so maybe they started getting up early, mm-hmm. and that extra hour allowed them to write a little bit more. And over time, like people just want everything to happen overnight, and we interpret when we see success as things that all happened at once and happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I mean, those are the one-star reviews. Those yeah. are the people that like, it's too simple. It can't be. It can't be accurate, right? Because it's too simple. <laughs> I'm fine with the one-star reviews as long as they got the point. Yeah, you know what? That's the, the point whole... is is that it is simple. Yeah, yeah and that's exactly. fine. And if that's right. what they need, um, and they don't need the rest, that's fine. I don't mm-hmm. read all of most business books. I'm flattered that you did, mm-hmm. but most business books, I kind of get it by the introduction. Mm-hmm. And if it's really intriguing, I'll keep reading. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm reading nonfiction books for a reason. Not yeah. to say I finished them, but to learn something from mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And so you focus on that. Um, so habit stacking, I mean, it's kind of the vogue now. It wasn't in 2013 when we came out. Yeah. But it does seem to be kind of the ultimate superpower. Yeah. If you can build the habit of building habits, mm-hmm. then you know, every year, you know, statistically, you can, you know, 66 days is the average amount of time it takes to build one. You can build five new habits in your life. Um, I think there's a limit to how far you want to take that. Like, how much of your life do you want to be that purposeful? I don't think you have to be that purposeful to have an amazing life. Some people will become robotic with it. Yeah, right. right. Um, But a handful of really strong habits can propel you in amazing ways in the things that matter for you. What what does an average day, typical day, look like for you? And what are some habits that you really attribute a lot of your successes to? I'm not naturally a lark, but I've become one. My kids, you know, we, having kids forces me to start waking up early, and I just mm-hmm. kept the habit even okay. after they started sleeping in. Um, and I've found that morning time um, to be incredibly productive. There, you know, nobody's calling and texting at 5 a.m. Um, it is free, open mental space for me and my wife. And so usually most days we get up early, get up at 5.10 is when I have my alarm set. Mm. And now it kind of happens even on the weekends when we don't set our alarms. I might sleep in until 6. But we're generally up early. Um, we work out uh, with the trainer three times a week. Okay. Um, we get to hang out with the dog. I usually will read for a good 30 minutes to an hour every morning. And I love that because I get to feed my brain. Mm. Um, some of it's consuming news, um, pretty carefully curated, not just like watching, you know, violence right. on TV news, <laughs> which can be very depressing. And, um, and then we have breakfast as a family. Pretty early on, we made a decision that um, we'd have two meals a day 
as a family, breakfast mm-hmm. and dinner. And we have exceptions, of course. Right. But kind of start the day getting that family energy, too. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the last thing I do most days is I look at my calendar. Okay. And so usually before 8 a.m., I've looked at what I have time blocked for my day. You know, based on my goals for that week, this is how I'm going to allocate my day. And I can look up and say, I need to get mentally prepared for the day I'm about to lead. All right. So, so. We, we talked about a couple of my favorite things in the book. Um, for those people who may not know what the overwhelming message of the book is, can you talk about the the way that it started, the origin of, um, of how you guys decided to put this into an mm-hmm. actual book, a handbook, and then what the one thing is in the book that you're trying to get across to people? Um, the book happened kind of by accident. We were working another project. This would have been back in 2008, um, right before Lehman Brothers, I guess. Um, I was working on a course in KWU. Um, Gary was working with me. I was leading our education division back then. And he took it home for the weekend to write an essay. And I've told this story before, so I won't dwell Mm -hmm. on it, because I know you like to have fresh stuff. Basically, he came back and had written a short essay called The Power of One. And I remember sitting down with him, and I said, you know, Gary, I think this is a book. Mm. And he goes, I thought the same thing. Because it embodied um, very distilled, you know, like 14 pages, um, distilled a lot of the principles that he held dear around being productive. Mm -hmm. And it boiled them down into very concise language. Which had obviously worked for him fairly well. (laughs) And so um, that was the genesis, right? It's like, oh, wow, Um, this is not only a good idea. I saw, in terms of my publishing brain, it's in perfect alignment with what I saw as his great strength. Hmm. A lot of people will say, I've got this idea for a book. Yeah. And I think one of the first questions, readers, I mean, people aren't looking for another book to sit on their bedside table. Right. Right. Um, most of us have a pile of them waiting for our attention. Mm-hmm. So we often ask, like, what qualifies this person to write this book? Yeah. And so he answered that question very powerfully. Like, I could look at all of the years I'd worked with him and thought, wow, this is kind of his thing. Hmm. So it's very congruent with his life. It's a very honest book. Mm. And then we spent five years working on it because we wanted to make it, um, his, his practice became the hypoth- hypothesis. And we had two full-time researchers out there finding data that supported it or disproved it. So really? some of it went away okay. and evolved, and some of it we felt like was supported. Yeah. And that's what became the one thing. Was there, was there a period during that five years, uh, I, think you, I think you mentioned you guys took a break from that. Well, when the, re- the Great Recession happened, mm-hmm. I mean, he's leading what at that time was the fourth largest real estate firm in the world. Mm-hmm. We agreed that we would take a break and write a book about how real estate agents can navigate a shifted market. Mm. So our one thing changed, as we would say in the parlance of the book. Okay. And we took about six months off to write it and six another months, yeah. six months off uh, where we were passively working on the one thing again, but we were trying to get that book out in the world. Okay, gotcha. Um, gotcha. So... I like the joke, we were writing a book about focus and got very distracted, but it was warranted. <laughs> um, the Great Recession doesn't, hopefully it never happens again, right. but it was the right. thing that we needed to do. Yeah. Um, and the big idea here is that um, the things that will ultimately pay off the greatest in your life are the times when you will have been the most focused on what mattered most. Hmm. And it's not the only thing, it's what is the primary thing right now? What's the thing that you know you should be giving most of your attention and energy to? Mm. And it can change throughout the day, you know? I get to the end of the day and when we had small kids, 
and it was time to read to them, mm-hmm. I don't need to be on my phone. I don't need to have a football game on. Like that is precious moments and my one thing should be present, right? Yeah, yeah. I wake up and I'm a professional writer. I should come into the office and my one thing should be reading and writing books. Right. And yeah. so it's situational and it can evolve, but it's a, it's a way for people to practically apply that principle. Like how do I live that now? That's what the book is to me. How often do you, how often do you need to step back and look at that in terms of clarity? Like, is it something that you think about throughout the day? Like, am I really focusing on my one thing, or did I get distracted? Or is I it get just... distracted all the time, okay. and people delight in pointing it out. Um, <laughs> that's the, the hazard of being an author. Of yeah, yeah. you're not working on your one thing. Yeah. And my, yeah. my kids, you're multitasking, Dad. Um, that happens. But yeah. the rhythm for me is weekly. You know, we said, uh, you know, we talked about our, um, before this started, for years and years, my wife and I have done a goal setting retreat. We set long range goals, five year goals, and one year goals. Hmm. And so that's like a weekend a year where we kind of go big. Yeah. And then the rhythm is every week we say, based on my annual goals, what do I have to accomplish this month and this week? Hmm. And that's about 30 minutes a week where okay. I'll look at my goals and I'll look at my calendar. Um, my wife lives the same way. And we kind of say, based on where we want to go and where we are today, what does this week look like? Typically on a Sunday? Friday or Sunday. Friday or Sunday. Um, okay. If I've got a quiet Friday, I'll try to get it done so I'm not disturbed on the weekend. But a lot of times, sometimes Sunday afternoon, I'll break out my laptop, get my calendars out, and just kind of sit at the kitchen table and plan out my week. Got it. Tell us about the goal setting retreat. Sounds really, really intriguing for those people who are really interested in that and might want to find out more about it. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, goal setting to the now. Okay. And um, when we were working on this book very early on, my wife and I already had the tradition because we had two kids very close together. Mm-hmm. And she was building a business. I was building a business. It made life tough for a young married couple mm-hmm. that we just needed to get out of our world and get on the same page. Okay. So in the beginning, it was very informal. Um, she downloaded um, a one-page questionnaire from the Internet, like <laughs> great questions to answer for your marriage or something. Right, right. And uh, we went on Priceline and found a cheap hotel downtown. It was the first time we'd ever spent a night away from our kids. Okay. But it was so effective in terms of figuring out, like, where do we want a vacation this year? Do we want to save money this year? Do we want to give money to charity this year? What do we want to do for our kids this year? We started asking really important questions mm. without all the distractions you have at home. Like, mm. the, the dishwasher's not going off. The dog's not asking to be let out. Mm-hmm. And you can actually focus on them. And getting on the same page became very important, so it's become a much more formal process. So last year we started offering that as a facilitated workshop, Okay, and we still do it. I guess this is our 12th or 13th year of doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah, we've already got ours planned. We're going to Nashville. Um, Spend two days working on our long-range goals, and that'll determine what we do in 2019. And then in late November, we'll have a class here in Austin where we'll walk other people through that. Okay, so that's in Austin. Yeah. What are the dates for that? Uh, Gosh. The November 16th and 17th, I, I was think. Say, or where can they find the dates for that? <laughs> it's on thethonething.com. The you can go to thethonething.com slash event. And um, that's the number one. Yes, the number one. Thank the you. number one thing.com yep. slash event. You got it. Perfect, perfect. If you, want to, if you want to learn more about that, if you're struggling with goal setting, need clarity on goal setting, 100% recommend um, going over to, to Jay's workshop. Um, so we've circled around, talked about a bunch of stuff here today, Jay. I want to end on the topic of networking because that is everything everybody's like at last yeah. <laughs> i'm here for networking Finally. guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so if uh if there was if there was one tip that you had centered around networking what would that one tip be um i think be purposeful be systematic okay um about 
when the one thing came out, I remember my, you know, I was building a business, my wife had a business, I had partnerships in two or three others, and I asked, what's the one thing I can do for all of these businesses? Hmm. And having written a book, that opens a lot of doors. I had people knocking on my door, and with my coach, we just said, you need to be purposeful about networking. Because hmm. you can introduce talent into these businesses, you can introduce business opportunities. You don't have to be the lead salesperson, but you can be kind of an ambassador for hmm. all the businesses that you're a part of. Yeah. And so um, under his challenge, because meeting strangers is not my idea of a good time, <laughs> um, I told him that sometimes I like meeting people for coffee. Okay. And so we agreed that every Wednesday was when I set it up, Wednesday mornings, I would meet a stranger that someone else had said was really talented for coffee. Hmm. And no agenda, just show up, learn about them, kind of like an interview, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about yourself. Um, I hear you're a great designer, no agenda. And they got added to my database. Mm. And so if I added 50 people that were talented to my database, like what would that do for the future of our businesses? That was what we did. So the first year I did exactly 50 and quit. (laughs) And I was like relieved. Yeah. Well, Uh, that's done. Check it off my list. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it was still very uncomfortable. And I was going on LinkedIn to try to find friends of friends. And it was hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, The second year, I think I did 79 or 80. Okay. Because some of the people I'd met the year before said, hey, you should meet my friend. Got this buddy, yeah. Right, and it started to kind of build its own momentum. And um, I looked because I knew we'd probably talk about this. So from 2013 to this year, we, I've averaged about 85 people. So oh. it's about 85 new relationships. And I mean, granted, sometimes I just show up and I find out I'm talking to a salesperson who mm-hmm. has no interest in knowing me and just wants to sell me crap. Right. But a certain percentage of them are awesome, and there are people that I want to stay in touch with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's been kind of my very, my wife's a salesperson. The idea of okay. only having to meet one new person a week is ridiculous <laughs> to her. Um, but as an introvert, it's like, well, I've also made that a commitment. Like, right. I, I know that I can, that small domino, I can consistently knock over without fail, and I actually do better than that. Mm. But that's almost 500 people now. Right, right. And that's a much more powerful database, and it naturally evolves. So if I was going to say, like, reverse engineer for people, um, it started when I did something um, that was a little out of the ordinary. Mm. So do anything. Yeah. Um, start a podcast. <laughs> right? I mean, the moment you say you have a podcast, most business people are flattered to be called. Mm-hmm. It doesn't right. matter if you have an audience or not. Right. People will say yes. It gives you a reason to ask. So figure out something that's somewhat unique, that's a win for them, and that becomes your door opener. Right. Make right. a commitment to getting face-to-face with people. If that's what, I mean, for me, it was face-to-face. I think that's really rich. I'm comfortable doing this. I mm-hmm. feel more extroverted focusing on one person. Right, right. Um, I can fake it with a large group, but then I fall apart. <laughs> Those people started inviting more people. And at a certain point, like, I only have so many mornings I'm willing to actually go pay for coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you end up naturally like, saying, well, you know what? I should probably plan a happy hour. Hmm. or there's this educational event, like a goal-setting right. retreat or whatever, and then you start inviting everybody you've met to those things so you can see a bunch of people at one time. you got a meet-up that's coming up. Right, yeah, right. so like mm-hmm. it, it naturally evolved, and mm-hmm. last year, about, um, I guess, 14 months ago, um, my coach said, so great, you've got all these people in your database, you're seeing them kind of regularly, what are you doing to follow up with them? Hmm. Didn't Nothing. have an answer. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Um, because most of them were more extroverted than me. They followed up with me. They dropped me a line. Hey, mm-hmm. what are you up to? Whatever. So right. I was definitely coasting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, we came up with a plan and agreed that I would just write a monthly newsletter. Mm. Super personal, not professional, not salesy. 
And um, that was very uncomfortable for me in the beginning, mm-hmm. um, even though I'm a writer. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. I just call it what I'm up to. It's usually five or six bullet points, real short and sweet. Um, and it's had really unexpected gifts. Like, first off, like in terms of a newsletter, it gets about a 47% open rate. Wow. And I don't, no one, I don't know when anybody unsubscribes. Wow. So of the 450 or so people that I've asked permission to be on that newsletter, mm-hmm. there's about 375 still on there. So some people said, hey, I don't want to stay in touch. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. But it's now become this place where if I have something really important, I can share it. Right. Um, and the unexpected gift, um, because I'm a goal setter and I'm always thinking about five years, whatever, I tend to live a lot of my present in the future. Hmm. And that's my orientation. Yeah, right. And um, what was really great about this is it forced me, I get to the end of the month, and it's called what I'm up to. It's just what did I do the last month? I actually have to reflect back on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's been really rewarding because I've never been a journaler. I've never done anything like that. So it's okay. effectively become like a, a journal on a monthly. monthly journal, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's helped me. Like I've got old college buddies, like my old roommate from France, that is now right, almost every month he'll reply back and share something back. And it's definitely helped me stay connected. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it started with just being purposeful, and it kind of naturally evolved. Mm-hmm. Purposeful, um, systematic. And I can't tell you how many jobs I've filled through that, mm. knowing that that group of people I could reach out to and say, "Hey, we have a marketing director position open. Mm. Do you know anybody?" Right. Um, that group of people has been very rewarding for us, even though I just kind of built it just because out of obligation. If I'm right. a business person, I need to network. Right. I know that. It's just not going to happen naturally. Yeah, but you did it the right way, though. You didn't. The thing is, people want to, people, people want the well to be dug when they're thirsty, but they didn't do the work to dig the well, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll need a marketing director position filled. So then they just start going and to these networking events or they start having these lunches, but it's all with the agenda that you were saying you didn't have. Right. I mean, so if you come, always something it's trite, but if you're, you've, already, you've already built up some equity in that relationship, mm-hmm. you can make a withdrawal. It's like a bank account. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, you've made some donations. And I, I just, I'll credit my coach. Yeah. You know, that's been very important for me. Those, there are things that I'm not sure I would have done for myself that either my coach or my wife has pushed me out of my comfort zone, and I'm always grateful. Right. Which is but, also a form of networking. Yeah, uh, and that's one thing. I, so this is a question I'm going to ask you in a second. I ask everybody on the show. Sure. Is the who you know versus the what you know. And um, one thing that I don't think most people think about when I say who you know, they don't think of it in the mentorship type setting. They think of it in the deal striking type setting. Sure. Whereas for me, um, coming into this world in the last year, year and a half, it's all been the mentorship type mastermind settings. Like I'm just, I'm just a sponge. I just want to meet people and I want to learn from them and I want to see what they're up to. That's all it is. But having those connections has allowed me to do that at a rate that most people won't be able to do that. Um, and uh, most, but, but a lot of people only think of it in terms of like, well, you shouldn't connect with Gary V unless you can strike a deal with Gary V and get him the New York Jets tomorrow. Like that's, but you're thinking about it the wrong way. You're only thinking of it in terms of a financial return into your bank account, which is not what relationships are because people separate them, right? They're, they think like networking for business is over here, building friendships is over here. When in reality, it's really one big thing. Like you build friendships, some of them might be just a friendship, like maybe some of your high school friends, that's how it is for me. Mm-hmm. None of my high school friends really do any of the stuff that I do, but they're still my best friends. You know, whereas some of these other relationships that you curate, they're my friends, but now we do business together or we help each other out, we mastermind. They're, it's all one thing, and I think people get it, they compartmentalize a little bit too much. Yeah, but I can without, see that. Without going, into that too, without going into that too deep, 
let me ask you this question. Ask every single guest that comes on the show who you know or what you know. Which one's more important? Does anybody say what? Knowing yes. it's a networking yes. show, just just to be contrary, or because they have a reason. Uh, they uh, sometimes they have a reason. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because when I started the show, that was like the question that I had at the very beginning, yeah. just to like lob one up so they can knock it out of the park, you know. Yeah. But I started getting all these different various random answers, and uh, it's been one of the most intriguing things to me because it's kind of been a staple of the show, and a lot of people come to hear what people have to say on that topic. But I put who first. I do think there's a limit on that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I looked at the people I was inviting to my network, mm-hmm. it wasn't because of who they knew, it was because of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And right. so um, there are people whose what is networking, and mm-hmm. the reason you go to them is they're a master connector. Mm-hmm. But if I just have master connectors referring me to people who are referring me, that'll get old fast. <laughs> right. What right. I want is a, a short path to people who actually do things that are kind of remarkable. Right. That's what I consider a talent network. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when you are in relationship with talent. Talent tends to attract more talent. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you get Amanda Horvath, right? Because she's this great videographer, and I think she's talent, right? And mm-hmm. she's filming us right now, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm totally going to mess with her now. <laughs> and But you'd think, well, she probably hangs out with talented people. Mm-hmm. That's been my supposition. It proves to be true. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of what built into that. Yeah. Right, um, right. Very few people get to be talent purely on their networking skills, mm-hmm. and they end up in HR. Right. <laughs> so, like I said, yeah. like I'm willing to go through the who, and that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look up, and I want to surround myself with people who are doing remarkable things and who share my values. Mm-hmm. And that's the who I want around me. Right. And there is some what built into that. So, I don't know if that's too confusing. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it's a very thorough answer because that's basically what I believe. I think, I think that it's who you know for sure, hands down. But you have to be competent. And you have to always be learning and growing because if you just know a bunch of people but you never take the next step, then you're always just unimpressive but everybody knows you. <laughs> like you're just the guy that kind of shows up to the, to the event and says what's up and people give you a hug. But then when that's you leave, you're That's your one thing. That's fine. I don't want to judge it. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. that's your one thing. I know some people who are that person and mm-hmm. you better believe. The super connector. I definitely right. am. Yeah. I'm on the phone with them and they tend to be very entertaining, fun, great people to know. Right. Yeah, yeah. But there is totally. like a, depending on what your ultimate ambitions are, I do think there is a limit to how far you ride that. Right. Um, right. I may be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I think that's the biggest difference, though, is that when I ask that question, a lot of people don't think of it the mentorship capacity. They only think of it in, in terms of, hey, who can you do a deal with tomorrow type thing. And, and so yeah. a competence. That's transactional. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly. turning who's into what's. What mm-hmm. can they do for me? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have a long shelf life. Correct. And Correct. those are not the people I You'll think You'll always to find call short-term success, with. but you're going to burn through people, burn through people, burn through people, instead of having real, long-lasting, valuable relationships with others. But... Your personal story is a fantastic example of how a mentorship-type relationship fueled not even just your career, but your entire mindset. You like, like you were saying, just started investing in real estate. Your money mindset, your wealth creation, everything that you've built stemmed from a bathroom conversation with Gary Keller, right? Yeah, that's pretty much where it all started. Yeah. I didn't expect that when I got into it. Yeah, but he's really purposeful, and you know, there's a model um, for one of his classes called Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I call it no one succeeds alone, but it's, it's a model for looking very purposefully at your relationships. And it asks the question, do you have mentors in these important areas of your life, a spiritual mm-hmm. mentor, a health mentor, a business mentor, right? If it's like on page 114 of the book, we go through the seven circles. Mm-hmm. If it's that big, right, it's a big part of your life, wouldn't it make sense to have a mentor or an advisor? Right. 
somebody who's been there. With right. it. Yeah, they could give you real advice when you needed it because those are the areas that tend to matter most. Mm-hmm. And the other one, um, and this is where Gary's definitely fulfilled it, um, he talks about, do you know who you determine wealth for and who are your wealth determiners? Hmm. And it's a really different kind of question. This is more of a business, but like, um, in some ways, I'm a wealth determiner for Gary Keller because before me, he didn't write books, and together we've been writing books. I'm not saying he wouldn't have, but that's yeah, just the way right. it turned out. Mm-hmm. And that's increased his reach, and therefore, he sees that as a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If my work in connection with him is creating benefit for him, he sees it as an obligation backwards. Okay. And frankly, now that I've seen that relationship, I wouldn't determine wealth for anybody who didn't see it that way. Right. There are people who will just take, take, take and never share. And then there are people who see that as inherently something that's got to be shared. Right, right. And for, I guess, about four or five years now, we've taken that. And when we do our retreat, I ask my wife, who are the five people who most determine our success? Hmm. And that's been a really interesting exercise. To, you know, it's actually like eight people. I, you're supposed to do five. We always cheat. <laughs> but it'll be like, these are the people that um, those relationships actually matter on a business level a lot mm. more. So it might be your number one referrer. It might be your number one client. It might be an employee in your organization mm. that you really rely on. But just being aware that some of those relationships matter at a higher level allows you to treat them differently. Yeah. Right. But right. I was thinking mostly about like, those areas in your life that really matter. Like, do you have a mentor? Do you have a coach? I mean, our physical trainer is our health coach. Mm -hmm. I know I always have someone I can ask, well, what should we do about our diet? What should we do about this? Mm. And that's there and it's present, and I can always ask those questions. Yeah, and I feel like there's so many excuses for a lot of people, but the the biggest thing to remember is, like, if you're in the situation right now is, and you can't afford to go hire seven different mentors, there's something really cool. It's called YouTube. (laughs) And there's something really cool. They're called podcasts. And then there's a book like this, like mentorship and coaching and all that stuff has never, ever been as easily and readily available. Um, And I I think the reason that you are in a position to be able to hire those people is because you were also doing those things when you were not able to hire those people. True. I I can't, some book I read once called, you know, all of the authors that you never got to meet, you know, they're your dead mentors Hmm. and they're waiting on a bookshelf for you to have a long conversation with them. And that stuck with me because there's, that information is always accessible, mm-hmm. and you can learn from their life and their journey. Yeah. You know, if you want to read about Benjamin Franklin, there's probably like 10 amazing biographies you can mm-hmm. get read. Right. And right. you can have that conversation with someone who's done amazing things in the past. Right. Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high-quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls. There's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save